ultra running and running in general was a big part of your your life and you started off um i learned just to get fit just to you know keep in shape but then you decided to run these marathons and then eventually ultra marathons which is basically ending that is longer than a marathon um what what made you get into that into the Um, ultra running aspect of things yeah, it's it's again. I, I kind of touched on this earlier. I do have this sort of obsessive personality where I'm, when I get interested in something, I get really, really interested yeah. in, it and I just do it to a ridiculous degree. So, like, yeah, I am the guy who decided I was going to jog uh, a mile three three days a week and ended up ten ten years later running twenty four hour <laughs> races. It's just uh, I just got into it by degree. It was like, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll stay fit, and then I did that for a year, and it was like. Oh, it might be interesting to run a race. So I ran a five kilometer race and I thought, oh, that's cool. Uh, might be more challenging to try and run a marathon. So I, tra- I trained for a marathon, run that. And then it was like, oh, that's good. That, 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 that was good, but maybe I could get faster. And then I read up lots of literature on, you know, training and how to, how to improve. I, w- I wasn't naturally athletic in any, in any way, shape or form. Um, in fact, I was the kid in school who was the least sporting and athletic. No uh, way. I was literally the worst. Uh, I was I was the kid who came last in every single race. Uh, just didn't think sport was a thing I should even wow, do. Okay. And I, I I always remember the last day uh, in secondary school when when we were all leaving, um, and I was going off to college, or I was pretty sure I was going off to college. And my best friend said to me, he said, "You can achieve anything you want in life." And then he thought, except obviously sport, you'll, you'll never do anything <laughs> in sport. And I kind of took that as a challenge in, <laughs> in a sense. So when I got into running and I started to get better at the marathon, at, at the marathon stuff, and I was never like anywhere near to elite, um, but I got faster. And then when I got under three hours, that was a big deal because only, only 5% of poker or marathon runners ever get under three hours in their life. So I was like, okay, well, this is cool. I'm in the top 5%. And then I wanted to see how much better I could get. Uh, and I so brought my time down to three hours, three hours. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, so, so I got my best time down to two hours and 43. Uh, and then I felt really wow. good about that. And I, considering I started late as well, like I started in my thirties and, you know, I think I was ranked maybe top 20 or 30 in Ireland. So that was pretty cool. And I was able to tell my old school friends, see, I did actually achieve something to do <laughs> in, useful in sport. But then uh, the Dublin marathon used to be a sort of center point in my year every year. And um let me let me get the year right i think it was 2005 so i was just just about to turn 40 um and i trained perfectly i got a coach at this stage and i trained absolutely perfectly for the race and i thought okay well 243 is what was my best time maybe i'll get under two hours 40 this year and on the day of the race um i'd done all my preparation everything that went that could go wrong actually nothing went wrong the weather was fine. I felt fine. Uh, no bad experiences with other competitors, anything. Uh, nothing I could put my finger on, except just generally I didn't perform as well as I thought I would. I was going to. Um, and I ended up running uh, two hours and 52, which was like twelve, a good 12 minutes worse. So I came out of that race and I thought, like, well, what could have gone wrong? My, tra- my training was perfect. My preparation was perfect. I was fine on the day. I had no mental issues. I had no physical issues. Um, conditions were perfect. What could possibly be wrong? Uh, and then the obvious answer was like, it's your age. You're, 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 you're going to be 40 now. Um, people decline over time. You're in, in as good a shape as you can be for 40. But 
that's as far as it goes. And this is this is the way it's going to be every year from now on. You're going to get gradually slower. Um, and that was quite a depressing thought. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, I don't want to put the same amount of obsession and compulsion into just trying to get marginally less slow uh, every year. So I told all my friends in my running club, okay, I'm quitting running. Um, I'm clearly my age is I'm past, I'm, I'm past my peak now. Uh, I'm not going to go into a long, slow decline. Um, I'm just going to quit. But I was intrigued by ultra running because I'd heard about ultra running. And one thing I noticed when I, when I was doing ultra running, I'm oh, sorry, doing marathon running was that I always finished the races really, really strong. So, uh, and I would recover from them fast. And when I said that to somebody once they said, Oh, well maybe you should do the even longer stuff then. Cause maybe the marathon actually in a weird sort of way, isn't long enough for you. And you know, <laughs> the reason why I, I always came last in the races in school is that when you're in a school, when you're in school, they're typically all sprints. They're a hundred meters or a couple hundred meters, the longer the distance, the better I was. So, you know, I was a terrible sprinter. I was a decent five kilometer runner. By the time we got up to marathon, I wasn't elite, but I was, you know, top 5% or whatever. Um, and thought, okay, well maybe, uh, and I, if nothing else, it'd be nice to see what the experience of running an ultra marathon is. And because I'm quitting as a marathon runner, I'm going to lose shape because I won't be doing the same training. So while I'm still in shape, uh, I'm going to run an ultra run just to see what it's like. So as luck would have it, the New York ultra was only two weeks after the Dublin marathon, which didn't give me ideal time to recover, but just about enough. So I thought, okay, well, I'll try that. See how that goes. So I went across to New York for that race two weeks later with my wife. Um, That race is run as I think it's six and a half laps of central park. It's so essentially 60, 60 kilometers, kilo- isn't it? 60, yeah. It's 60 kilometers, yeah. Sorry, it's, not, it's nine laps, actually. Nine and a half right. laps, I think, yeah. So it's 60 kilometers. So essentially, it's a, it's a marathon and a half. So it's wow. not like an insanely long distance. So I thought, okay, well, this is just a bit longer than a marathon, but it is longer. It's still an extra 18 kilometers or whatever. Uh, and so that will give me the experience. Um, and I went along there just to really just to see what kind of the experience was like. And just and obviously New York's a nice place as well to run a marathon <laughs> and or an ultra marathon. The New Yorkers are great. They all come out and cheer. Um, so it seemed like the perfect place to do it. I remember standing on the starting line, looking around at all my fellow competitors going like, because I knew nothing about the ultra running world. So I didn't know who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. And I was like, I was looking at some guys and they looked like, you know, elite athletes. And I thought, and they had film crews with them and stuff. And I thought, okay, well, that's obviously a very vis- visible tell that this guy is good. He's got TV cameras on him. Uh, but then the race started and, and those guys actually weren't, <laughs> weren't, weren't the, the elite performers. What it was is most of those guys were triathletes and they were just using this as part of their training. Um, and so they had the film crews following them around because they were preparing for some triathlon, but they weren't actually elite runners. And actually, the guys who were elite runners were guys who looked more like me, uh, who had sort of my shape and physique. Um, and there was one guy I remember when I saw him standing on the line. I thought, OK, well, he's, he's obviously a, a joke runner. He's like the guy you see in the marathon running in the Ronald McDonald outfit or whatever, because he was he was middle aged. He had a bit of a belly and he was wearing Union Jack shorts. And I thought, OK, well, he's 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 just here for the crack. But then somebody told me, oh, he's won the race twice already. And he's the favorite again for this year. And I was like, all oh, right, okay, this is this is a very different world from what I'm used to. So the race started and I just ran at the pace that I thought was should be the pace I should be running. Um, and I was quite scientific in my approach. I, I, I used to wear a, a Garmin watch, which monitored my heart rate and so on. So I knew kind of 
the heart rate I should be keep uh, I should be maintaining. Um, and that put me in sort of a league group of four people, which pulled away from the rest. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. I'm actually in the league group now. <laughs> Uh, with the guy in the Union Jack shorts, uh, a short Spanish guy who who I who I was convinced was going to win the race because he looked the most like a real runner in my mind, and uh, I think the fourth guy was from Italy. Yeah, he was he he, he was an uh, Italian. He looked like an elite runner too. So I thought, okay, well, one of those two boys is going to win. Um, and the English guy in the Union Jack shorts was really chatty and he was like, okay, we'll all just stay together. It's got the races between the four of us now and we'll get to the end and we'll see who wins. Uh, so we ran a couple of laps and then I think it was the Italian took off. He just like went for it. And the English guy was like, let him go, let him go. He's going to blow up. He's going to blow up. Uh, he, he, he won't even come into the top three now. We'll catch him. So ran for a few minutes and going through my mind is thinking like this guy knows what he's talking about. Cause he's won the race twice already. But on the other hand, it's obviously in his self-interest that we run the race the way he wants to run it. Mm, yeah. Uh, and if we just run the race the way he wants to run it, he's probably going to win it as well again. So he wants us all to stay together. And then presumably he's got a very good finishing kick. So I thought, okay, well, probably all we're doing by playing along with his plan is guaranteeing that he's going to win the race. So I made a decision there and then that I was going to try and chase the Italian down. So I went after the Italian. So now there's the Italian out front. There's me in second place. And there's the other two boys running together, the Spanish guy and the British guy. Uh, And it's, it's basically like loop to central park. So essentially it's a large square. Uh, And I remember as we got to the top of the square, the Italian was like mile was considerable distance ahead of me uh and i wasn't sure whether i could catch him or not and then we then i turned the corner and the and and the top part of the loop was essentially just a few hundred meters long so i was expecting to see him and i didn't see him and i was like oh crap he must be he must be uh he must be further away than i thought i'm i'm, I'm actually not ca- not only am i not catching him he's he's he, he's farther away than i thought he's getting farther away from me so I was running along processing this and then I heard this guy puking his guts out in the side and I looked over and the like the Spanish guy had blown his lot obviously and he was he, he was he was he, he was a goner just as the English guy had predicted except much faster and I was like oh crap <laughs> clearly we are running too fast uh and I've got lured into this now, but I decided, okay, well, there's no point in just going back and joining the other two because I've, I've wasted all this energy. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to run, keep running as hard as I can for as long as I can and see how that works out. So we got to the end of the first lap or, or the, we got to the end of that lap. And my wife is like, she can't believe when she sees that I come around and I'm leading the race <laughs> on my own. She's like, what, 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 what the hell is happening? So I, I tell her like, tell me how far ahead I am. So she waits and the guy, the other guys come through like 28 seconds further behind me or whatever. So next lap, she tells me you were 28 seconds ahead last lap. Next lap, she says, you're a minute and a half ahead now. Wow. Uh, next lap, it's like you're two and a half minutes ahead now. And I was like, this is brilliant. Uh, my, my whole plan was to get so far ahead because I knew they'd be getting information as well, was to get so far ahead that they'd be demoralized and they would just stop chasing. Um so I did end up running the second half of the race significantly slower than the first half, but they slowed down even more. Uh, so I ended up winning the race by this uh, this, this rather uh, spur of the moment strategy of just 
chasing the Spanish guy and then trying. Try. But but it meant I ended up running like the last two thirds of the race completely on my own, which is difficult to say the least. But at the same time, I was thinking, holy shit, I could win this race. This is this is this is a big deal. I've always wanted to win a race, and this is a big one. Like wow. this is the New York Ultra. Uh, so I was so I was so excited that I just found extra energy from somewhere. So I ended up winning the race, and it was completely surreal. I still couldn't believe that it had actually happened. Uh, and I was wandering around in a kind of a daze, like, how did I win that race? That's just so weird and random and bizarre. And it made the newspapers back home that I won the race. Um, and I came back, and all my friends from the running club were like, they were laughing, going like, you told us you've retired, and then you went <laughs> off and you won one of the biggest ultra races in, in, in the world, uh, what happened? So I was like, yeah, I, I guess I'm better at this ultra running stuff than I am at, at, at the actual marathons. Maybe, I, maybe I'll do a few more. And the Irish Athletics Federation rang me up. First of all, they wanted to drug test me. <laughs> they were like, this isn't supposed to happen. People don't, people don't come out of nowhere and win big races. Uh, unless, unless your name is, or unless you're somehow related to Michelle Smith. So, so there was a couple of months where they drug, they literally drug tested the living daylights out of me. Every time I opened the door, it seemed there was a drug tester there. They were, they were clearly convinced I was juicing. Uh, wow. and that was the only possible explanation. Once they got past that, they were like, okay, well, you're, you're clean. Um, maybe you'd like to run for Ireland in a, in a race that's coming up. So I ended up running a 100-kilometer race in Edinburgh uh, as part of the Irish team. Went really, really badly. <laughs> When my, my, my pre-mortem was great because at least I anticipated everything that could, that could go wrong, but everything that could go wrong did go wrong. On the day, I had an Achilles tendon problem. Uh, I had a stomach inf- I had a stomach bug. I couldn't keep food down. I had a chest infection. Uh, just everything went wrong, and <clears throat> the race didn't go very well. I somehow managed to finish it, but it didn't go very well. And uh, I came home, and then... Later that week, I got a phone call from the our, from the Athletics Federation, and they said, "Look, we have a really we have three really good runners, uh, twenty four hour runners, and they're going to compete in the World Championships. Um, and if we had a fourth runner, we'd actually have a chance of a team medal because uh, these guys are really good. Now, you are the only person in the country who could possibly run a twenty four hour race because you're you're the only one who's who's running longer than a marathon. So." would you consider running this race? And I was like, 24 hour race. Are you out of your mind? I, the hundred kilometer race almost killed me and you want me to run 24 hours. So I said, okay, well, I'm probably not going to do it, but I'll talk to my coach about it. Um, so I talked to my coach. He's um, Nori Williamson. Shout out to Nori, Scottish guy living in South Africa. Uh, and I said, okay, these guys want me to run a 24 hour race. I just don't see how it's possible. Uh, Nori's a, He's a real sadist, which makes him a great coach. And he was like, oh, no, you can definitely run it. And I was like, huh? He goes, yeah, yeah, you can definitely run it. 24-hour races are all just mental. It's all about, like, in the mind, if you can keep going for 24 hours. And actually, all the physical training you've done over the last few years for marathons, that's what you would have been doing had you been a 24-hour runner anyway, pretty much. We'll just make a few adjustments, a few small adjustments, our memory said, uh, which should have set off alarm bells when Nari said small adjustments. But... <laughs> so, 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 so not, what Nari had me doing was... Snorri's idea of a small adjustment was instead of doing a long run, like when you're a marathon runner, your long run is 20 miles. Nari said, okay, well, you're going to have to run for 24 hours, so your long run's going to have to be longer. And I was like, okay, what does that mean? He said, okay, well, you're going to run for 40 miles every Saturday morning. Oh, my God. And I was like, 40 miles? Are you serious? <laughs> and he said, yeah. 
then you're going to rest for the day. And then in the evening, you're going to run 30 miles. And I was like, huh? 40 miles morning, 30 miles evening. What, what, what are you on about? He said, look, the whole thing in a, in, a, in a 24-hour race is you have to be able to run when you're tired. And this is how you train yourself. You tire yourself out in the morning with a 40-hour run. And then you force yourself to do a 30-hour run when you're knackered in the evening. Um, the other thing you need to be able to do is you need to be able to run and eat at the same time. Because... Uh, you know, what, what went wrong in the 100 kilometer races, I wasn't able to take on food because, you know, I, I listened to my mother when I was growing up, which was like, you don't eat, you don't run for an hour out on, uh, in the first hour after you've eaten. But when you're running the really long stuff, you have to be able to eat and run at the same time because you need the calories. So he said, okay, we're going to have to train that aspect as well. So before you do your 40 mile run, just eat the biggest breakfast you can, like oh all God. the rashers, just pile it all up. So the first few times I did that, that was incredibly unpleasant and I got sick and I felt awful. But Nari was like, no, no, this is how we train the body. Your body will eventually adjust and adapt. And it did. Um, eventually got to the stage where I could, I could eat a huge breakfast and, and go straight out and run. So I traveled over to Canada for the 24 hour race. Uh, I was, I had recovered from the hundred kilometer race and at least I knew how to run and eat now at the same time. And um, the race was in Quebec in a place called Drummondville, really small town. Obviously not very much happens in this small town because they got incredibly excited about the fact that they had the world 24 hour championships there. Didn't seem like ideal conditions because it was like Canada in summer is very warm. Um, so it was like 35 degrees, 90% humidity. Uh, <clears throat> that's what I got up to during the day. But I mean, that was an imponderable. Nobody knew uh, how we were going to respond in the heat. So, you know, you just get on with it and see what happens. So the race was around, um, I think it was a two kilometer loop. It started uh, on an old bridge that came into the town. Then we ran into the town down the main stream, then main street, then out of the town across a modern bridge uh, beside a kind of a motorway. And then there was a, there was a, small road which looped back from that motorway back to the old bridge where the race started so that was the loop so you, so the idea was we all started at the same time and um you just ran for 24 hours and they counted your laps and your partial lap uh so i had no i, I had no real expectations i didn't know how i was how i was going to perform or anything i ended up doing a lot way better than i expected um I was the first Irish person. So I beat the other three guys, Irish guys who were all considered to be elites. Wow. Um, I was 32nd overall uh, in the world. And that was despite getting injured for the last three hours. And basically I was just able to walk for the last three hours, kind of dragging my, my, my busted ankle behind me. Um, so, so yeah, I kind of discovered that actually 24 hours was my, probably my best distance. Uh, yeah. I, I broke the Irish, uh, record for a newcomer. Um, and then I went, I did a few other ultra races that year. I actually crammed a lot into the first year. Um, I ran the Connemara marathon, Con Connemara long marathon, the ultra marathon as a training run and came fourth. Um, and that, yeah. And I wasn't even allowed to run fast. My coach said like, keep your heart rate down below 140 the whole way. Uh, if I've been going flat out, I'm pretty sure I would have won it. Um, and then I ran the world six, six hour indoor championships in Brno in Czech Republic. Uh, six hour indoor race is a fairly mental uh, thing to do at the best of times. And it wasn't even in a running track. It was in a roller skating rink 
So we were just running around a roller skating rink, um, dodging dodging pillars, and obviously the surface was was designed for roller skating, not running. Yeah. So it was really really hard. So all sorts of issues in that race as well. I got sick. Uh, I had intestinal problems. Um, I got injured, but I ended up. Uh, I still ended up winning the race and breaking the Irish record. So I had I had kind of a an amazing year where in the same year I won the New York ultra marathon. I was the first Irish person home at the world 24 hour championships, breaking an Irish record and winning the Irish national chap 24 hour championships and winning the world six hour indoor championships in the new Irish record as well. And I won another race in, in the Netherlands. Um, so that was all crammed into my 41st year, let's say. Uh, and then 42 was the age at which I started playing poker and that gradually took over. Wow. I mean, there's a lot of things you said there and I'm just amazed when you're talking about this. First of all, they start off at such a late age of 31, I think you said, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think that's, that's crazy. And then running this 24-hour race and like, did you, I heard you kind of, well, you collapsed in a way, did you? You, you had to go to yeah. the hospital. What happened yeah, then? this was... Yeah, the, 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 uh, as I explained, the the race was like a two hour loop. I oh, was sorry, a two kilometer loop uh, in and out of Drummondville. Hmm. So, and they and, and they just had lap counters. So as you would run by, they would go, okay, that's your fourteenth lap, your fifteenth lap, etc. But obviously, it's a twenty four hour race, so it starts and then twenty four hour later, it ends. And at the end of the race, the way it ends is just a hooter sounds, and wherever you are on on your on the on the loop, you stop, and they'll come out and measure you. Uh, um to give you a partial lap so you know you've you've run 102 laps and a bit of a lap so they want to see how how long the bit of a lap is so they'll give right. you the, the the final distance that you've run so as bad luck would have it i was exactly halfway through a lap when the hooter sounded so hooter goes i stop um and the way they the the, the, the way they measure them they got like 300 runners to measure or whatever so they they had two measuring teams one start uh, both both at the finish line one went forward from the finish line. So the first person to get measured was the person who was nearest the finish line. So who had done like 0 0.01 of a lap or whatever, measured them, moved on to the next one and on. Then they had another team going the other way, um, going from the finish line back. So somebody who had almost completed a lap was measured very quickly. Then they measured the next person who was close to finishing lap. But because I was literally halfway through a lap, I was literally the last person to be measured. Um, so, so it took about an hour before the, the, the uh, those guys got to me to measure me. Now, you towards the end of a twenty-four hour race as well. The optimal strategy is not to drink any water for the last hour or so, because uh, it's called voluntary dehydration. Essentially, any water you drink in that period won't really be properly absorbed because the body takes so long to absorb water. So drinking water in that last hour actually just negatively affects your performance. It doesn't help uh, keep you hydrated because it takes more than an hour for the body to absorb the water. And it just, it's just extra weight you're carrying and extra work, extra load you're putting on your body to absorb this water. So the optimal strategy, which, which I got from my coach was don't drink anything for the last hour. Uh, you'll get dehydrated, but then the race will be over and you'll be able to rehydrate. That was the plan. But I find myself halfway through a lap 
sitting on the road waiting for them to come and get me. Uh, nobody around with water, nobody around. And I can't move because if you move, you're disqualified, obviously. Um, so I'm just sitting there uh, severely dehydrated. It's 35 degrees, 90% humidity. Um, and I just got obviously seriously dehydrated. Uh, so the, the guys came and measured me and they said, okay, you can go now. So I got up and started walking back towards the start of towards the finish line where I knew the rest of the team would be. Um, I don't really remember what happened. I just remember that I, uh, I guess I passed out at some point on the, on the walk because uh, I woke up and there were people all around me. I'm literally like looking up at people and they're all like, Oh, call a doctor or whatever. So I'm like, Oh, okay. What's happening here? I guess I must've passed out. Then I have no other memory. I pass out again. Uh, and the next time I wake up, I'm in an ambulance and there's people all around me. And, uh, I asked, I think I asked one of the doctors what's happening. And he said, Oh, you collapsed. We're bringing you to hospital. And I was like, okay, I guess that's what's happening. <laughs> uh, okay. So passed out again. Next thing I do is I wake up and it's the middle of the night. So it must've been 3am or something. Mm. And there's two, there's two doctors either side of the bed. And this is, this is a uh, French speaking Canada, Quebec. So they're speaking in French, but my wife is French. So I understand French. So I wake up and there's this conversation going on between the two of them about whether I'm going to die of cardiac arrest or kidney failure. So one of the, one of the doctors, I guess, is a cardiac cardiologist. And he's like, look, we, we've run the test. His heart is three times the size of normal. Uh, so he's going to go into cardiac arrest. There's something horrible gone, gone, wrong, gone wrong with his heart. And the other guy who I guess was a kidney doctor was like, no, no, his kidneys are, are, his kidneys are ruined. They're not functioning anymore. He's, he's going to die of kidney failure. So, so they're talking this and I wake up and they don't realize I can understand what they're, (laughs) what they're talking about. But obviously I had done a fair amount of research on 24 hour races before I decided to do it. And one of the things I had discovered was that quite often at the end of a 24 hour race, this happens. Your, your your internal organs look like they're shutting down, but they're not. They're just repairing themselves very quickly. Um, but if a doctor who doesn't know uh, sort of the symptoms um, sees you, they'll think you're dying, but you're but you're not actually dying. So I was saying to the cardiologist, "Look, my heart is three times bigger, but that's 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 normal. That's my normal heart size. Uh, I know that from the from from previous." Uh, like I've had tests done before and they told me your heart is three times the size of normal. It's a, it's a response to all the training you've done. So that's not a problem. And he was like, no, no, it is a problem. Like your heart's just so big. And then to the kidney guy, I was saying, look, the kidneys shut down temporarily at the end of 24 hour races, but, but you don't die from it because uh, they, they start up again very quickly. And he was like very skeptical going like, uh, don't think so. Like your kidneys are absolutely banjaxed here. Uh, so I was like going, no, no, it'll be fine. Honestly, I'll, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Uh, I go back to sleep and then I wake up the next morning and there's a wheelchair beside the bed. And then the doctor comes around and he looks kind of like perplexed. And he, the, it was the, the heart doctor actually. And he says, yeah, you're actually right. We've, we've run all the tests now and, you, and you're, you're, uh, your internal, all your symptoms, all your signs are back to normal. Uh, your, heart, your heart rate's normal again. Your kidneys are working again it looks like you've made a full recovery apart from the fact that your feet are completely swollen and you can't walk. So we, we have this wheelchair here for you, but you can, uh, you can leave now if you want. So um, one of my teammates came and got me and we basically flew back to Ireland. Um, uh, I was in a wheelchair, but, but 
but that was just because my feet were so swollen. Your, your feet swell so much in a 24-hour race, particularly in the heat. A couple of really horrible things happen. First of all, is they're so swollen that the skin is literally stretched to maximum capacity. So like it feels like your skin is just absolutely stretched. The other thing is your toes get so much bigger that the toenails just slide off. Um, so I'd lost all 10 of my toenails. Um, Ouch. And I'd noticed... Yeah, I noticed that in the race because as I was running the race, as we, uh, past a certain point, I don't know which point, 18 or 19 hours, I looked down on my shoes and they were normally green, but they were suddenly completely red. And I was like, well, that's not good. I wonder what's going on there. So I um, I said, okay, I, I better have a look. So I remember, I remember sitting down by the side of the road, struggling to take the shoes off. And I, and I was, they weren't even my normal shoes because as I said, the feet expand. So you need to get to buy bigger shoes mm. and change into one size bigger every few hours. So I take the shoes off and I take the socks off. And I always remember the moment when the, the toenails all just dropped out. And I was like, oh, oh crap. <laughs> and I just looked at my toes and they were just like a bloody mess. And I was like, oh God, that's really not good. But I just somehow got the socks back on, put the runners back on and got running. and said, okay, I'm not going to think about that uh the the race will be over in a few hours anyway and i'll worry about it then but yeah so i wasn't able to walk uh for hmm, let me think maybe 48 hours after the race um but i was actually out running again by the middle of the next week so the, no the, the recovery was, was 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 super fast um but yeah there was a lot of uh unpleasant aspects to that first experience for sure in a way, you sound like Superman. Like you, you're just able to recover from these races pretty easily. Why do you think that is? Like, what did your training look like? What did your nutrition look like in order for you to recover so quickly? Um, I was very well trained by Nori. I must say, Nori, Nori has written a book called The Lore of Running, uh, which is probably the definitive um, book on ultra running uh so so nari had me eating all the right stuff and doing all the correct training uh so my training regime as i said there was there was a long run day which was 40 miles in the morning 30 miles in the evening but also mm, eating yeah. just just before running to prepare the body for that um in terms of nutrition it was just kind of like eat as much of everything as you can because during the 24 hour race you have to consume 20,000 calories uh that's what your energy expenditure will be so if you don't consume that, you'll you won't get to the end of the race. So, twenty thousand calories is a lot to eat in one day. That's what a typical person eats in a week. Um, so, the best way to eat it is to just eat constantly during the race. So, every lap there was like a, there was a part of the lap which was um, the food area, and they had all sorts of food. You know, potatoes, pasta, meat, rice, vegetables, fruits, bread biscuits everything you can imagine so what nari told me was like when it comes to the race if you eat the same type of food over and over again your body will get sick because it'll just get you know it just won't be able to process like twenty thousand calories of spuds or whatever so the trick is you've got to eat something different every time so like pasta cheese eggs meat Etc. So I so so part of part of the process was thinking, okay, having a sort of a mental checklist of what do I eat this this lap. Um, uh, so so yeah, just kind of ate everything, uh, literally everything, and um, got really good at digesting. <laughs> it's because uh, the twenty four hour races they're not 
the 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 thing ultra runners say is that they're not running races they're running and eating races um because you have to eat so much basically to get through them but i think probably the biggest thing i had was just a sort of uh like when I when I was going into the race, I was obviously a bit apprehensive. So I was talking to my teammates. Um, one of the guys, a hilarious guy from Northern Ireland called Marty Ray. And I said to Marty, like, what do you have any special tips for me on how I'm going to get through this? And he said, you'll be fine. It's all mental. It's entirely like, can you keep going? That's all it is. Um, so just prepare yourself for like horrible levels of discomfort, etc. But if you come down to whether you're able to sort of push through that and keep going. And I mean, I think that's what I had. Like I've, I've always had this ability to just sort of like forget the current discomfort um, and just concentrate on what I want to do. And that's followed me into poker as well. Like, as I said, when I have bad experiences in poker, I'm able to shrug them off very quickly and just get back to concentrating on what I should be thinking about uh, rather than, oh, poor, poor old me t- losing that big pot uh, in a situation where I shouldn't. I think it's the kind of common thread uh, of of just sort of like being able to marshal my mind to do what I want rather than react to adverse um, situations around me. Yeah, and you know, earlier on before you mentioned the whole story of you running in New York, <clears throat> you mentioned, you know, people who might necessarily seem like they're going to win, win the race or yeah. that they previously won the race. Like, what kind of shape should people be in? Like, is because I I was kind of shocked by that fact when you said, "Oh, this guy didn't look like a elite yeah. runner or ultra runner, but in fact, he won the race twice in a row." Yeah, it, 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 that, that that was an eye opener for me. If 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 you if you look at uh, different distances in athletics, hmm. um, you see different body types. You know, the sprinters look different from the milers the miners look different from the 10 kilometer runners and the 10 kilometer runners look different from the marathon runners. And it's, it's so noticeable that like um, my daughter was a very good uh, runner in her youth as well. And her coach used to say that he could look at a kid and he would know almost certainly what their best discipline was going to be, whether they were going to be sprinters, distance runners, um, throwers or jumpers uh, purely by their body type. Um, so when you look at marathon runners, when we think about marathon runners, we think about the Kenyans and Ethiopians. Um, you know, they're very slim, they're small, they're compact. They uh, they have very skinny legs. Um, uh, they're just very efficient. And not knowing anything about ultra running, I assumed it would be similar in ultra running that it would just be the same but longer. Actually, it's a lot different. When you look at the top ultra runners, they tend to be more muscular. They look more like lightweight bodybuilders. Um, The reason for that is when you're a 24-hour runner, when you're a marathon runner, you first of all, you can run it without eating. You can run it without drinking. So it's not important to be able to digest on on the run. Um, And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of weird to talk about it, but comparing it, marathon to a 24 hour race a marathon is almost a sprint um it can be done just there there, there on the spot um but the mar- but 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 running a 24 hour race core strength actually becomes really important because when you're running for 24 hours you need to have the core strength to hold all of your internal organs in place for 24 hours even while you're getting very very tired 
So the guys who are very good marathon runners don't move up to the longer distance, like 24 hours, because they don't have that core strength. What happens is after six or seven hours, their body breaks down and, uh, and, uh, and they get sick and they just have to stop. So the guys who, um, who are able to do the 24 hours from a physical point of view are guys who have a build more similar to mine, which is taller and, uh, more muscular and not, not muscular, muscular, but not, not skinny Kenyan either something in between. Um, so it turned out just purely by accident that I kind of had the right body type for ultra running as well, in the sense that I had that sort of in between body between the, the elite marathon Kenyan or Ethiopian runner and the, and, and, and the bodybuilder. So yeah, that was, that, that, that was, um, that was just, I guess, genetic luck. Um, one thing I realized for ultra running too, is that like everything is a, is a genetic lottery. Um, the reason why I outperformed the other three runners, the Irish runners that day was that I was the best in heat. Um, and that was just pure luck at the draw. Like I had never run in heat. I don't like heat. I don't go to hot countries to sun myself. I don't mind it a pleasant experience, but somehow miraculously when I'm running in heat, everything works perfectly. Um, my physiology, just by some pure genetic, uh, complete luck of the draw, my body deals very well with heat and humidity. So there were guys from Australia who were collapsing from heat exhaustion, uh, who, you know, trained in the desert, but weren't able to run for 24 hours. And I was like running, going like, this doesn't even feel that bad. Why, why is everybody complaining about the heat? But that was just pure luck of the draw. Mm. There was another Irish guy on the team. Uh, he became the, he was the first European ever to win the um, Himalayan marathon, which is run obviously at altitude. And it, that's normally only, only won by people from that part of the world. But for some reason uh, he had this, this genetic abnormality where he was really good at altitude and, uh, and he won the race because of that. There was another Irish guy who became the first uh, to win the, the North Pole Marathon, North Pole or South Pole, I can never remember which, maybe South Pole. He was the first to win the South Pole Marathon um, because he was really, really good in cold. Uh, and uh, and these things are all just genetic abnormalities. My, my, my genetic uh, abnormality was very good in heat. Um, so even though I didn't enjoy the experience running in heat, it affected my performance a lot less than uh, the, the, than other people. And, you know, when it comes to, like, it's very difficult. First of all, marathon running is pretty difficult, like an Ironman and so on. But, um, like, what kind of, like, do you ever feel like giving up in the middle of the race? Do you ever feel like, ah, screw oh, yeah. this, I'm going I'm going to quit, oh. I'm just going to walk oh, away? Oh, yeah. And how do, you, yeah. how do you deal with that? How do you overcome yeah, that? Yeah, I, I mean, that's what it, that's, that's probably the biggest challenge. That's why there are guys who are like in much, there were guys who are in much better shape than me, but they stopped because your brain is constantly flooding you with negative messages saying like, stop, this is stupid. Mm. Why are we, why are we doing this? This is ridiculous because there's a physiological reason for this. The, the, the brain is the only, the only um, organ in the body that can't burn fat. It can only burn uh, glucose. Um, so it needs glucose to function. Now, as you run a long distance and you burn all the glucose, all, all your glucose reserves, uh, what actually happens is your, your brain starts to panic. 
because it realizes it's running out of fuel. So it starts sending you all these messages, stop. It's like saying, oh, stop. Uh, you feel tired. You feel sick. You feel ill. Uh, this is stupid. Why are you even doing this? This is, this is insanity. So you have this internal monologue going on all the time where your brain is actually trying to get you to stop because it's panicking that it's running out of um, glucose which is not going to, because as I said, you keep eating at the same, mm. so you, you, you continually replenishing it, but you're burning. The, 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 the brain is monitoring how fast the glucose is being burned and it thinks we have some sort of evolutionary mechanism, which makes it think, oh shit, we're running out of glucose, uh, better get him to stop. So you, you, you can, you're constantly flooded by these negative messages and you just have to be able to sort of like ignore them. Um, and uh, my coach used to have a technical term for this uh, dissociation. He used to call it. It's where you stop identifying with yourself. You basically just see yourself as a, as a, as, a, as like a machine or something, which you're driving. Um, and you ignore all the messages coming from your brain about how bad you feel or how painful something is. And you just treat it as sort of an input. This is, this is something my brain is telling me to try and get me to stop, but I'm not going to stop. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the process. It's, it's it's weird, but you do essentially become like a driver of yourself. The only other time I've, I've ever had that experience um, outside of ultra running was when I made my big final table in Vegas in 2015. And as we were walking to the final table, I had the same feeling of like, I'm not the person who's going to the final table. I'm the person who's controlling that person. Uh, I'm, I'm outside that person. So it was almost like I was observing myself and observing everybody else and essentially like advising myself or driving myself, telling myself what to do. Like in this situation, this is what you should do. And then I, then I would do it, but I, it, it didn't feel like I was that person anymore. It felt like I was almost removed from myself, watching myself. Um, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's very difficult to explain, but that's the first time I ever experienced that was um, when I won the ultra marathon in New York. It was like, I came out of myself and I thought, like when I made the decision to, to to chase the Spanish guy, I didn't, it didn't feel like it was, it's very hard to explain, but it didn't feel like it was me chasing. It was like me telling myself to chase after this other guy. And then as I did that, me observing going, yeah, this is what we should be doing. And then when I saw the guy sick going, oh, maybe that wasn't a good idea, but, but, but keep going. You have to keep going anyway and see what happens. So there was this sort of removal, removal of the, my central consciousness, whatever you want to call it from myself. Um, so that I just focused on like what, what I should be doing rather than how I was feeling. Um, and that's basically how I kept the emotion out of it. And I think the same in, 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 in the biggest aspects of my poker career on that live final table, anytime I make a big online final table, I do have the same kind of feeling that I'm like stepping out of myself and observing myself rather than, um, experiencing all the emotion that's 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 that's, that's that, that goes around being on a big final table you know this stuff is really interesting to me when when you mentioned dissociation from like being yourself you're essentially observing yourself from the outside so you're on that poker table you're running a race and then there's somebody else watching you do it and yeah. in a way like i've been reading up about spirituality and so on by Eckhart Tolle and all these great spiritual teachers such as Krishnamurti and so on, and they always talk about the observed being, no, the observer being the observed, which is essentially what you're saying. You kind of stepped outside your conscious thinking yeah. because there's, in a way there's kind of two 
two parts of consciousness. There's you and there's there's me in a way. I I don't know how to explain this, but like that's essentially what meditation is when you're kind of sitting down and you, you're able to see your thoughts, you know, you're, you're able to identify your thoughts and you kind of like what you said there, you observe yourself thinking. So I think that that's that's really interesting that experience happened to you while you're, you know, in your most. Yeah, it it does feel very meditative. And like I did meditation for years. Mm. I, um, I, I got interested in Zen Buddhism when I was uh, in my teens. Mm. So. And the, the the misunderstanding or miscomprehension I had about meditation, which I think a lot of people have, is that you're supposed to be able to like block everything out and just uh, focus. And I would be meditating and I'd have all these ideas coming into my brain, uh, which had nothing to do with what I'm trying to do. But then uh, I can't remember who some meditation teacher told me that's the way it's supposed to be. You're actually just observing the way your brain works yeah, and like all this stuff is yeah. happening. And you're just seeing this is what happens. This is this, this the way all these distracting uh, thoughts come into my brain. That is just the reality. Uh, just deal with it. That's fine. That's that's what you're doing with meditating. You're kind of accepting that reality. Um, and I, certainly running the 24-hour race was an intensely meditative experience. I mean, again, I can't describe it, but it felt like a different level of consciousness or being where when I pushed past the point where I was incredibly tired, but at the same time, I... It's a, it was a bit of an out-of-body experience. It was like, yeah, this is happening, but it's not quite me. Uh, this is not my entire being. And um, my, my, I just felt incredibly connected with what I was doing and what was happening around me rather than sort of distracted by it all, let's say, or... Um, it just felt like this is this is sort of like core existence. This is what existence is like rather than what my normal day-to-day existence is where I'm distracted by stuff all the time. That, that for for some reason that makes sense to me. Like I kind of understand the feeling. Um and I, I was reading this book, it's called A New Art, it's by Eckhart Tolle. And in chapter nine, I believe, it's called Inner Inner Being. He talks about, you know, when you're inner being is aligned with who with with the universe in a way and you're just able to it's a different state of consciousness and i feel like you kind of experience that consciousness yeah. when you're running your ultra marathons and you're just able to step away from the situation so just listen to that story i think is really really cool <laughs> yeah that's oh yeah that's good that's good to hear yeah yeah it's 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 something i mean it's, that's one of the reasons why i've kept up the long running even though i don't need to anymore because i'm not um I'm not competing competitively, but I, a few years ago, I made the decision. My crazy. The door. Uh, made, made the decision a few years ago that I was going to go back to doing one long training run a week because that, for me, is like a deeply meditative experience, and I always come into that feeling refreshed. And it's essentially like a mental reset. Uh, any mental baggage I'm carrying around, any dis dissatisfaction with stuff that has happened in the last week or in my life generally it just seems to all melt away on that long run and i end the long run feeling you know rejuvenated ready to go again um and i f- i do that every monday because like when you're a when you're an online poker player sunday is the is the, is the busy day mm. that's the day when everybody plays online so sundays are incredibly grueling and more often than not 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 particularly f- uh quite upsetting let's say um so i, I like to have monday sort of like my reset day um, and then once once I've done my long run, uh, I'm I'm basically good to go again. Mm. And you know when it comes to training and 
like that in general just to become an ultra runner and get better and better what what are the common mistakes what are like the biggest waste of time that you 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 perhaps saw other competitors do or that mm. you notice yourself by experience um does anything pop into mind yeah um there's a couple of things overtraining is 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 one issue and i mean when i was training when i was a competitive ultra runner i felt tired all the time but but my because i'd hooked up with nari uh, who who was an expert he understood of the absolute limits that we could push to but it's very important not to push through those limits because if you push mm-hmm. through those limits then you're not going to perform well and the reason why my uh, ultra running career ended somewhat prematurely after i took up poker was I didn't have the same recovery anymore because um, uh, I was sitting at a poker table rather than recovering uh, from my training. So that's the first thing. Recovery is super important and um, not overtraining. Um, Most, I would say most poker players are too lazy and they would do better if they worked harder. But most runners who didn't achieve their potential, it's actually, they were the opposite. They were not lazy enough. They, they, they trained too hard to the point of overtraining. So that was the first thing. The second thing is there's a lot of um, fad science out there about this, this, this additive or this substitute or this particular food is a miracle drug. Um, most of it is just bullshit. Uh, there was one American coach, I can't remember who, he was asked about all of the um, supplements, that legal supplements, obviously, that his runners were taking. And he said, like, well, do you think they the, they have any effect? And he said, yeah, they have an effect. It means they have the most expensively colored piss in the world. Uh, <laughs> so there was a lot of that stuff. It was like, oh, try this particular fat from walnuts or something a lot of faddish stuff around i still see it in poker poker goes through phases where that where everybody's doing is obsessed by the latest uh food breakthrough or stuff that's a lot of that is just a dead end to my mind um the basic principles of nutrition are fairly well established uh if you eat a proper balanced varied diet that will take care of pretty much everything um rather than worrying about the latest uh, fad drug or fad fad food supplement okay and you know you're also you're also working as a tech consultant before you start all this and i learned that you studied electrical engineering purely just because there was a good market for it and then you eventually picked up some computer science and so on but why did you actually decide to work as a tech consultant instead of working for some company because essentially that was your own business you were uh, yeah. traveling and you were working as a tech consultant. What made you go towards that route instead of, you know, taking the perhaps the more normal route of getting a job? Yeah, I, I, I guess it's just a kind of a restless mind and sort of intellectual curiosity, which drove that. I grew up in Ireland in early 80s when sort of everybody's focus was just on getting a job. Uh, unemployment was at very high levels and, you know, when you came from my kind of background, which is not a rich background, you just wanted, and you and you and you had the possible, you had the smarts to be able to do something more than a ma- manual job. You know, nowadays people put a lot of thought into what they actually would like to do and what what they would find fulfilling. That wasn't really a consideration for us. It was just <laughs> like, what would get me the best job? So it was like, I could be a civil servant, I could be an accountant, or I could be an electronic engineer. Of those three horrible options, uh, electronic engineering seems like the least boring. 
So, and also I was fairly keen that I wanted to travel at the time. And uh, I thought, well, if I'm a civil servant, I'm stuck in Ireland forever. If, I, if I'm an accountant, you know, laws are different in different countries, practices, et cetera. So electronic engineering seemed like the thing that would transfer the, the best. So there was no more to it than that. It was like, this will get me a good job and, and, jo- and I can probably get jobs in other countries. Um, very quickly realized as I studied electronic engineering that I had zero passion for it didn't even like it found it incredibly dull and i was like oh my god what am i going to do now like i can't spend the rest of my life looking at circuit boards this is just going to drive me mental so when they when it came to giving out the final year projects it was mostly like stuff i just really didn't want to do uh you know design a circuit that does this or so the only one that was slightly different was there was um design a software package that will help people to design circuits. So it's like, <laughs> okay, well, at least that's a bit different. I have to use a computer and learn how to program. So I, right. so I did all that now. And I, I found that um, more challenging and more interesting than, uh, than just designing circuit boards. So I never actually worked as an electronic engineer. I came out of college and because I had done this programming um, project, I was able to uh, get a job initially as a programmer. Um, and, uh, got bored of that fairly quickly too. I would have to say after a year or two, I was pretty bored of that. And actually it was just a year now I think about it. Uh, but when I joined that company, it was a software company called Kindle. Um, when I joined that company, they gave us a training program at the start and the guy who ran the training program, um, he set up a department within the company, which was called the education department. And they were in charge of uh, writing all the material, all, all the manuals, and also developing all the training courses. So he came to me after a year and said, uh, you, you, you seem to have an aptitude for communication more than the other nerds. And uh, uh, I need somebody who like understands the technology, mm. but is also able to communicate it to customers uh, because we have to train customers how to use our software. So I was bored of programming this year. So I said, yeah, he also offered more money. Um, so I, I went for that and had a couple of happy years there. Um, and then when I left them, uh, one of the banks that I had done some training for as part of my job there came to me and said, we have this project and we don't really know how we have it requires different areas of expertise and we have all the experts in the different areas, but they don't seem to be able to communicate with each other. Uh, and the, and the project is kind of stalled. Can you, can you kind of come in and act as sort of the intermediary between these guys? Cause you under, you seem to understand the technology, you understand the finance and uh, you seem to be able to communicate with people who aren't expert in these areas. So that was my sort of first consultancy gig where I came in and I essentially acted as a, I guess a, an interpreter between the different expert areas. And that was sort of my niche for the next 15 years. I was the person who came in from the outside, um, essentially as a project manager and overall um, consultant, because I had a wide knowledge of all diff- of lots of different technological areas. So they would say, okay, we need a project that, th- that does this, this, and this. And I would be able to interpret that and say, okay, well, you need these kinds of experts, these kind of experts, this kind of, technical platform um and then i'll be the glue in the middle that tells them all what to do basically and 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 make sure they operate and they deliver something coherent so that was what i was doing right up until poker um usually i had three or four projects on the go at the same time and essentially i was acting as project manager slash uh overall technology consultant Hmm. 
I got expert in lots of different areas because I pretty much just took anything that, that I was offered. And beyond past a certain point, like when people hire people for, or at least at the time, I mean, I'm out of it a long time now, so I probably shouldn't um, generalize too much. But at the time, like if somebody was looking for somebody in astrophysics, they, you had to have an astrophysics degree. And if you were looking for somebody in finance, you had to have a finance degree and so on. But I had done so many different projects at this point, and I had such a wide network that people kind of knew that I could get to grips with almost anything very quickly. So like I did projects in the areas of uh, aeronautics. I did projects, medical research equipment, uh, all this stuff. And my job was always like to come in, absorb very quickly what the, what the big picture was and then work out how, what kind of experts you needed in different areas and to communicate to them what they had to do so that the whole thing would work together. Um, I I was also involved in the initial um, HTML project, which was, uh, I was an expert in a thing called SGML, which was um, standard generalized markup language. And at the time when they started thinking about expanding the internet past what it had been, which was essentially just email and, um, and a thing called Usenet. And they came up with the idea of, you know, having uh, the World Wide Web essentially. Mm. Um, and, there was this despair about like, how will we deliver this? How do we deliver something which is visual? Because everything on the internet, that stage, it was just connected computers. So it was people who could email each other. And then it was bulletin boards, which is what Usenet was. But they were like, no, we want this third component, which would be like pages that people can look at and move around and all this stuff. Um, it was, uh, so they thought, okay, well, we need something to, um, to program these pages in. And, uh, the English guy who was in charge of the project said, okay, well, the, the, the closest thing we have at the moment to that is, is SGML, standardized general markup language, which is just a generalized markup language that you can use uh, to create something which um, a browser could then interpret. So people will write the browsers, and if they understand the underlying uh, language, they can choose how to present the information, but but the the basic information will be there. Problem with the SGML was it was far too complex and uh, it would take up too much storage. At the time, the biggest limiters on uh, ad- adaption of something like the World Wide Web was transmission speeds. Um, most people were working off fairly rudimentary modems. So if you wanted people in their homes to start using World Wide Web, it had to be very concise in terms of the way it was coded. So HTML, the HTML project, the whole function of it was to try and take HTML and shrink it down to the absolute bare essentials that were necessary for, uh, for to, to, to be able to design web pages. So uh, I was one of, I don't know, 50 or 100 guys who uh, worked on that for a few years on and wow. off. We had like all sorts of debates about you know the letter b for example uh which is more which is more important uh or actually l was uh the 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 big debate was will l be for link or will we use something else we ended up using a for link anchor so there were just these insanely nerdy debates but the whole a couple of years into the project we kind of realized technology moves on so like the modems are getting better so compactness maybe isn't the biggest most important thing any any anymore and there was actually this big um philosophical debate between the the compact school and the not compact school the compact school of which i was part of were saying like it's important that we keep this information as compact as possible 
so that it uses a little storage because even if the transmission medium gets better, technology tends over time to move to new platforms. And every time there's a new platform, you go back to having less storage space. This is exactly what happened with mobile phones. When we moved from everybody had a laptop computer or a normal computer to everybody just has a mobile phone, the mobile phone started off with way less storage than uh, than than a computer could have. Now that's changed now. Obviously, mobile phones there's more storage probably in my latest mobile phone than there would have been in my desktop computer in 1995. But nevertheless, the nature of technological advance, let's say, is that stuff tends to move to different platforms. Uh, so those of us in the compact school always felt that it would be more important to keep the stuff compact rather than add, add lots of extra functionality, which wouldn't be used that much. So even to this day, the actual underlying HTML uh, under that underlies the web is still very, still very, very compact. And that means that you can have a fairly simple device that doesn't have a huge amount of storage um, but it can still access the internet and the World Wide Web. So you were involved in the initial stages. So that's why the A tag is well. You were involved in the whole design yeah. process. I think that's really cool. Wow, <laughs> you've done yeah. so much. You've done so much. Yeah, that yeah, that was a that, that was a super interesting period in my life because I do remember I I remember getting incredibly we we got incredibly worked up over like s- stuff like that. The A or the L, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and we didn't. Um, but it, 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 it's probably it's undoubtedly the thing I've done in my life that has the, has had the biggest impact because I mean the internet underpins absolutely everything oh, yeah. now, um, and those decisions we took way back then, you know, they kind of set the template for for for, for what's there now, and also the, the sort of philosophical thing about like do we do we emphasize functionality or do we emphasize um, efficiency? Hmm. And then you also have your blog, which started off just by kind of a diary dear diary yeah this is what happened and now and now it's a poker blog and anything else you write about so how like what do you still write on it like what kind of stuff do you write about and so on Um, yeah it's 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 definitely changed over the years when i was a runner i started a running blog and that was really just for my coach to read uh, (laughs) to tell him like okay i did that training that 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 i was supposed to do and here's how i felt afterwards and please don't make me please don't make me run that ridiculously long run tomorrow so it was it was kind of a whine but then uh, I didn't bother publicizing it but then other people started reading it and actually one piece I wrote um, on my first 24 hour race won a won a sports journalism award so that was like a real shock it was like oh my god people are actually interested in this this stuff so um, on the running side I started to you know write stuff that would be a more general interest than just me whining I ran 40 miles today and now I feel shit. Uh, so, so I was kind of used to the idea of journaling and the positive benefits of journaling. Mm. So when I, when I got into poker, I thought, okay, well, don't really have anyone to talk to about poker apart from my brother, but he's not that interested. Um, so I'll just write all this, this stuff somewhere. So I, again, set up this blog um, thinking nobody would, would read it. And, or nobody was reading it. And then when I started playing live and I started going to tournaments and people would come up to me and say, oh, I read, I read in your blog this. Wow. And, and it, was, it was a shock first. It was like, oh, crap, people are reading this stuff. I need to be careful. So like some of the early blogs are just ridiculously uncensored. Like I said, very unkind things about certain players because I didn't think they would ever read those. Unfortunately, they did. So th- there came a point where I realized, okay, people are reading this. So that means two things. First of all, I can't say so-and-so 
is a dreadful player and should never play poker again because so-and-so will, will read it and get very upset. Uh, so there needs to be a stylistic change on that front. But also I need to think about just not what's of interest to me, but what's of interest to other people. So over the years, it kind of evolved into anytime I did an interesting trip somewhere to play poker, I would describe not just how the poker went, but you know anybody I interacted with on the trips or whatever I saw. Uh, a lot of the poker tournaments are in um, interesting places to visit. Uh, so kind of a travel diary, um, a certain amount of strategy. People people love reading free strategy. Um, and then opinion pieces on whatever was happening in the poker world. Uh, and over time, the blog just kind of grew and grew to the point where it, it was one of the top five or 10 most read poker blogs in the world. Wow. Um, and this was this was the golden age of poker blogs when every top player had one. We're, 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 we're well past that period now. Um, the, the, the world has kind of moved more onto podcasts and YouTube content. In fact, there might be only 10 poker blogs active in the world right now. But, my, but, I, but I've remained active, um, not as much as I used to, but I still try and do about one a month uh, just on whatever I've done that month or whatever I'm thinking about or whatever's going on in the poker world. It's still a great uh, sort of calling card. Like I can go anywhere I go in the world, people come up to me and say, oh, I read your blog and I enjoyed this part or I, you were speaking a load of shite in, the, on, in this part. I completely disagree. But at least it's a conversation starter. Um, and it's been very good in that, in, in, in that sense. And then obviously from a purely commercial point of view, one of the reasons why sites come and offer me sponsorship deals when there are thousands of younger better looking players out there that they could be offering deals to is because of the the prominence the blog has given me over the years. Yeah. It's amazing how like these things that you don't really expect, no, you don't really expect good things to happen, but they just do like the blog yeah. started off, you know, just, just a diary for yourself and for your coach. And then look, it got your sponsorship. It got, it got you this place and so on and networking as well, which is really cool. And now you obviously have the podcast, which is an award-winning podcast in itself as well. So I think that's all really cool. Yeah, it's it's always kind of been my approach. Like I've never really been great on the sort of like I'm going I'm going to do this. It's just like oh maybe I'll try this and it, and and like I don't mind if something fails. Uh, right, if something yeah. fails, that's fine. You, you know, you give it your best shot. It doesn't mm. work. It doesn't work. You move on to something else. So I don't get I don't get attached to the idea that I have to succeed in everything I do. But the things I've given a lot of focus to, I have tended to you know be very successful for. In I was a uh, I did well in chess, back and bridge before all before poker. I've, I've done pretty well in poker. I did well in ultra running. I did well in my job before. Um, so anything which I sort of give enough focus to and start to do well in uh, and stick with um, has tended to work out. But pretty much it's all been accidental. Like, I mean, I didn't really put a lot of thought into my career and I just kind of ended up as a technology consultant because I didn't enjoy being an engineer. I didn't enjoy being a programmer and I, I, I just wandered into this. Um, similarly, I took up uh, running just to just to get fit because, um, like a lot of early thirty-year-olds, I wasn't um, that fit, and then that sort of ballooned into in, into this other alternative career. Um, and then poker again, similar, like just took it up to have something competitive to do uh, when my running career wound down, and ended up becoming my obsession for the last ten years. Um, that's. 
like I see other people and they put a lot of thought into their life about like, oh, what do I want to do? And they think maybe a hundred different possibilities and they do all sorts of research. That's never been me. It's just like, maybe I'll try this and I'll see if I like it. And if I don't like it, I'll stop. Uh, um, and if I do like it, I'll, I'll, I'll go into it more. It's sort of just more go with the flow. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the only way to kind of discover what you want, what you want to do. Cause this podcast is really about like chasing passion and, you know, finding out what you're, what you're naturally gifted at and i think you you present that you 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 represent that pretty well because like you're always just doing some that you're curious about you give it a go and then look it ends and you end up in a good place but i'm curious um you've done all these things you've done the tech consultancy you've done uh ultra running poker what's next what are you what are you working on next um i think maybe i mean I feel like I'm in poker for the next few years anyway, for sure. Because mm. even if online poker uh, falls by the wayside, and it has, before the recent coronavirus outbreak, online poker was definitely in decline. Um, but the coronavirus has actually given it a short-term boost by virtue of the fact that there are more people at home now and they have less um, alternative entertainments. So they're coming back to online poker. So right now for the short-term, online poker is booming, but I don't expect that to last indefinitely. So... I've already started thinking about like what I should do next. Um, I don't see myself stopping playing live poker uh, anytime in the next decade or so um, because I do enjoy poker so much, but maybe I won't give it the same degree of uh, absolute hundred percent focus I've given it for most of my career to date. So last few years I've been trying different stuff. I coach a bit, um, actually coach quite a bit now, uh, um with my first book um do the podcast with david do some youtube video stuff as well just content creation in general so i've been sort of more in the content creation space um mm -hmm. i find that rewarding as well in its uh in itself so working on my second book at the moment um i think probably writing is that is if i had to put i mean you never know because like i say most of my leaps have been they appear incredibly random from the outside. Uh, like I, people sometimes ask my wife, like, how did you put up with it all? You, you, you married this like computer programmer. And then <laughs> next thing you know, he's a, he's a runner running these stupidly long races. And then next thing you know, he's a technology consultant working all over the world. And, and now in his forties, he's a professional poker player. Like this is just nonsense. But it's that's just the way it's been it's sort of been it it, it it appears fairly random but it is just a matter of me finding something i really enjoy and that works um and then doing it so if i had to put money on what the next thing would be i would say probably far more focus on writing um uh, the the first book i've written is a purely strategy book the second book which is coming out in a month or two is also a purely strategy book that would probably be the for the short term but in the long term i would like to write a sort of uh, biographical book about my overall experience, autobiographical book about my overall experience in poker um, and how that's been, uh, or even just different phases of my life. Um, if I think I can make them interesting enough for people to want to read, um, I could see myself putting some time into, into writing that stuff up. Um, I have gotten more into the writing as well. Like when I used to write the blogs, they were literally just, I'd put zero thought into the writing. It was just like, this is what I want to say and here's why I say it. Whereas now I try and think about different ways to present information to make it more interesting or better. So I'm getting more interested in sort of the technical aspects of writing as well and uh, and, and 
and I'm, I'm being a being a decent writer rather than just somebody who writes about their experiences wow and i love the autobiography i i would i would love to read that because like <laughs> just listen to the story alone when you talked about ultra running and tech consultancy and poker like you have such a diverse career and diverse set of interests and yet you succeeded in everything you pretty much did so i think that's yeah, it'll be it'll be super interesting to read. So I'll be <laughs> I'll definitely be pre-ordering the book when it comes That's really out. That's really nice to hear. Yeah, and yeah. I just have a few final rapid fire questions before we finish up. Sure. Because um, yeah, um, so I guess what is something that you believe in that other people think is crazy? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, wow. That's really interesting. I just, um, there's quite a few, I'm pretty sure, because often I say stuff which I think is completely normal and people go, that's absolutely crazy. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess, I, yeah, I mean, I guess it's probably, maybe the biggest thing is I do kind of believe look before, or sorry, rather leap before you look. People say like, you should look before you leap. And I find that that actually holds people back a lot. They want to, they, they think they might want to try something or do something but they sort of research it to death and they find out all of the pitfalls. Like I don't know of any other 42 year old who became a professional poker player. And I, and when I say that to other people my age, they go like, that was absolutely insane. Like, how did you think that was ever going to work? Um, and it, it, I think if I had gone off and done lots of research and asked people, everybody would have said, look, all the top players started in their twenties there's nobody who started at that age and got to the top level. You're just going to lose all your money and waste all your time doing this. Um, but I didn't do any of that. I just, I just started and mm. let, 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 let's see how it goes. Same with the podcast. Like we didn't do any market research. We didn't go like, how do we get an audience? Uh, what do we have to do? We just kind of stumbled in, said, we'll do, we'll do our best. We'll make the best podcast we can make. Uh, and, and take it from there. And even at different points of the, of the thing, we got sort of like bad advice. Um, when we, the, the podcast wrapped up after a season because the company that commissioned it, the, an Irish company went into liquidation. So the only reason it came back was when myself and David signed as ambassadors with Unibat and they were like, okay, well, you know, we like your blogs. Uh, we like the fact that you're, you have a lot of interviews and you're, you're, you're both prominent figures in the poker world. Um, is there anything else you could bring to the table? And we were like, well, we used to do this. We used to do this Irish poker podcast, which is specifically Irish in focus, just covering the Irish poker scene. We could do that and maybe like expand it out a bit so that we're not just the Irish market. And they were like, oh yeah, that sounds interesting. Um, let's try that. And then, there was a bit of research done and they came back to it and said, okay, well, yeah, you, there's definitely a market for this. Now, the thing about Unibet is we only operate in certain territories, so we want you to concentrate on those territories. And we're like, okay, fine. Mm. Also, ignore America because all the research that we have done indicates that Americans won't listen to uh, people with accents, people with European accents. They only want um, to listen to American content. And I was like, I'm not sure about that. I mean, America is by far the biggest market in the world for poker we speak English. I mean, okay, our accents might be a little bit difficult, but you know, we can also talk in a way which they can hopefully understand us. And maybe we're just not giving Americans enough credit here. And I, I knew from my own blog metrics that my blog had changed over time. Like when I started writing my blog, the only people who read it pretty much were people in Ireland, other Irish people who were interested in Irish poker. 
Um, and then over time, people in other countries started reading it. And by the time this was 2015, 2016, whatever, I knew that ha- almost half of my readers were in America because um, it's by far the biggest poker playing country. Mm. Uh, it's where most poker players live. So I was like, I, I really don't think this is right that we should just uh, not go after America. And they were like, yeah, yeah no, no, don't, don't, don't bother with America. Don't, uh, don't get American guests. Just um, concentrate on Europe because Americans won't listen to Europeans. So we kind of ignored that advice and it basically stood to us because now half our listeners are in America. The, wow. the award that we won, the Global Poker Award, is an award which is only ever won by American podcasts in general. Uh, we managed to win it because we have such a large American audience. And the American audiences have been very, very enthusiastic in their response to it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's another example of where you can sort of like, I think the whole leap before you look, just try something and see if it works. And if it doesn't work, fine, stop doing it. Don't, don't beat your head against a brick wall, but also don't like stop yourself from doing stuff just because other people say it's a bad idea. Hmm. Okay. And what is the best uh, investment you ever made? Now this investment might be energy, time, um, anything you did, but that just proved to be a good investment. Hmm, That's a very good question as well. Um, Okay, I'm going to give an answer. The, the, the best investment ever was a, a plane ticket to um, to Germany because while I was there, I met my wife and she's been absolutely central to uh, not just my life, but my career in the sense that she's she's basically ridden the wave. She's somehow tolerated everything. Like when I decided at the age of 40, I was now an ultra runner <laughs> And this is what was happening. She like followed me around to races. She learned sports massage. She studied nutrition so that she she could support me as much as possible in that stuff. And it's been the same at every every time there's been a change. She hasn't done the traditional wife thing of like, are you sure that's a good idea? That sounds like a really bad idea to become a professional gambler at the age of 42. And even though she had her own obviously private concerns, which she only told me about years ago at the time, Years later, she at the time she was just like really supportive and said, "Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're very good at games. I'm sure. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it'll work out for you." So, yeah, I think probably the plane ticket to to Nuremberg, where I'm where I first met her, um, is the is the best long term investment. Well, I didn't expect that answer. Um, <laughs> and what advice would you give to a college student? Now, this college student is ambitious. He wants to succeed. Um, you know, he wants to move up in the world and he's about to graduate. So a college student who's about to graduate and enter the real world. Um, what advice would you give to such an individual? Um, basically, just find what you, what, you, what you really, really like doing and try and do that rather than focusing. I mean, the mistake, I lost definitely a few years of my life to my four years or actually five years because I ended up having to repeat studying electronic engineering because that was just something I was never going to want mm. to do. Um, it wasn't a complete waste of time in the sense that I at least learned computer science and got into something more interesting. But I've seen it with other people too. I've seen it with my oldest son. He, because I was so heavily involved in the IT area, he sort of thought, okay, I'll do that too. Um, Cause that's dad's thing. And, you know, he had no passion for that either. Uh, try and find what you're really passionate about and what you really want to do and surround yourself with other people who have the same sort of drive. Like, I talk about David with this all the time. We were joking the other day about poker players. The big thing is like 
life balance and taking days off. And we were both joking, like, what, what, what is this days off nonsense? We haven't had a day off since 2005. Uh, we work every day. But the reason is we enjoy what we do so much that it's not really work. Um, it's just what we want to do. And when I talked to the top poker players, we interviewed one of them, uh, Chrissy Bicknell, the top female player in the world last week for our podcast. And she said that like, when I try to take, when she tries to take days off, when the time comes in the evening and she thinks, well, what, what do I want to do? What she actually wants to do is just play online poker. So when you are, when your job is that is something that you're absolutely that passionate about, it's not really a job. It's just what you do. And um, it, it, it's much easier to have a happy life when you're doing stuff that you enjoy and you find challenging rather than when you're doing, you're doing stuff just for a paycheck. I love that answer. And yeah, I 100% agree. And if there was a billboard and this billboard is displayed to millions and billions of people. So anyone along, walking along the street, any part of the world, um, can look up at the sky and they see this big giant billboard just chilling there in the sky. Um, what message you? What message would you put up on that billboard? Um, probably just be kind. Uh, a lot of the um, problems in the world come from people being kind of shitty to each other. Um, obviously, the you know there are genuine conflicts, and when you're trying to achieve anything, you. Uh, often end up having to upset people um, or people don't see eye to eye. But a lot of it is just completely unnecessary. People just being shitty for no good reason other than they feel like it or they don't think about it. And I think if you treat people well, um, you'll just have a better life overall. Um, I've been incredibly lucky in my career in that lots of times people have like gone an extra mile to help me in some way. Um, whether that's get a sponsorship deal or um, with specific strategy or whatever. And like, I feel incredibly lucky, but I also think it's because I always got on my way to try and treat people as, as I would like them to treat me. And when you do that, I think people, uh, people will surprise you in their generosity. Um, and yeah, I think we could just make the world a lot better if we were just a little bit nicer to each other. I agree. <laughs> and what is your definition of chasing passion? Um, yeah, it's an interesting one because like passion is something which you kind of recognize straight away. Like as soon as I had poker explained to me and I started playing, I just felt it immediately. Right, this is something that I'm really, really passionate about. It's something I want to get good at. Um, so it didn't, uh, it didn't feel like work, uh, all the study I had to do or all the hours I was playing. It just felt like it was what I, what I, what I wanted to be doing. Um, so what I wouldn't have known that until I tried, like, I mean, I had played other card games. I had enjoyed them, but not felt the same degree of passion about them. So I wouldn't have really understood until I actually tried that poker is sort of the perfect blend of psychology meets maths. Um, and they're two of the things which have interested me the most in my life, the, the psychology of what people think and why, and the whole maths of everything. Like from an early age, I've just been fascinated by maths as sort of the language of the universe. Everything, how stuff actually works is mostly governed by mathematical principles and trying to figure out the, the maths. So, but, I, but again, I wouldn't have known that until I actually tried. So I think, you know, try lots of different things, but you will recognize it when it comes. Don't force it. Don't, 
a lot of people I see who fail in poker, they, they come into it thinking it's, oh, this is great. I'll get to make lots of money in fairly without having to work too hard. And they don't tend to last very long, even if they can have short-term success. The people who last longest are the people who are like really passionate about it. Um, but they all, almost without fail, they kind of discovered it by accident. And they were not the type of people you would necessarily have picked out as uh, people. There are some people who look like people said to me, oh, such and such must would, would make a good poker player. And then sometimes they come and get coaching and they, they don't, unfortunately. Uh, businessmen are the classic example. Like a, you would think that a lot of the same skills uh, apply to business as to poker, but very, very few businessmen make good poker players for some reason. Um, whereas like, you know, guys who work, uh, some of the top players uh, worked as waiters before. Some of them, some of the top players worked just worked in a shop or were petrol pump attendants. You don't really know until you try, but when you, when you do try and you recognize it as something that you really, really enjoy, then, uh, then that's your passion and just go for it. So you'll know when it's there. Yeah. And where can people find you? Um, I mean, you have your blog, you have your social media, you have your books, um, but where where's the best way to interact with you and get more information about what you do? Um, prob- pro- probably Twitter is kind of the central hub. Um, I was the first Irish poker player onto Twitter, and I, I, I remember no the incredible derision <laughs> it prompted at the time. All the other poker players going like, "This is nonsense. This is never going to catch on." People just people just putting up random shit they're thinking or doing. And I was like, no, no, trust me, this is going to be big. <laughs> so Twitter is still kind of the center. Um, from that, I put links to my blog whenever I write a blog or the podcast when it comes out, uh, free strategy newsletter as well that I do, um, any stuff I do in the books. Yeah, I would say Twitter. Uh, the last couple of years, I've start, I started doing some stuff on Instagram as well. I didn't, I resisted it for a while because it just didn't seem like my thing, but and I also don't want to just duplicate it. I don't want like my Twitter to be the same as my Instagram. But what I've found over the last year or so is that there's a certain number of people, and it's actually quite a big number, who are just kind of interested in the day-to-day of what your what your life is. So mm-hmm. five or six times a day, I just put up whatever I'm doing on my Instagram story. Um, you know, if I'm coaching, if I'm doing something like this, if I'm playing, whatever it is, uh, I don't force it in any way. Just what this is a essentially the diary of my day um which you know doesn't really work on twitter because people aren't that interested that you just came back from the gym although lots of people seem to think they are (laughs) that you are uh same with the blog people don't really want to be me to be too self-indulgent uh about like but when i you know instagram is 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 more forgiving platform let's say you can put up pictures of your food and people won't freak out um so yeah, Instagram is sort of just like what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. So anybody who's kind of interested in what a, what, what a typical day looks like for a professional poker player like me, um, you, you can also follow me on Instagram. And I don't tend to post many actual posts, in, but I do uh, update the story every day. Um, so yeah, Twitter and Instagram, I guess, are the big two. And from there, you'll find out everything else that might be of interest to you. Great. And it's just Dara. Um, okay, we'll find it. I'll link it on the show notes as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's just my name, Dara O'Carney, uh, with no apostrophes, just all one word uh, on Twitter. And on Instagram, I think I'm Doe Carney, D-O-K-E-A-R-N-E-Y. Great. And yeah, I'll, for the listeners, I'll just link all these in the show notes. 
And before we finish up, is there awesome. anything else you'd like to ma- mention, say, anything at all? Um, let me think. I guess the only thing I'm, I'm going to be really plugging in, in the near future is my second um, poker book. The first one, as you mentioned, is, was on poker satellites called Incredibly Imaginatively Poker Satellite Strategy. Um, the next one is going to be on progressive knockout tournaments, which are the main type of online tournament at the moment. There's been no strategy book written yet on them, so we're hoping to be first to market to that. It'll probably be called something very mundane, like PKO Poker Strategy. We haven't, again, got the exact title, but... Uh, but that should be out in the next few months. And um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Oh, also the podcast. Sorry, I should, I should mention the podcast. The, po- the podcast has been way more successful than we could have ever imagined. Uh, it's, as I said, probably top three in the world in terms of the poker space uh, listeners. Um, we won the awards. We have a, gl- a genuinely global audience now. Um, and... Uh, we put out 21 shows a year um, on that front. I don't want to overstate my own credit. I want to give most of the credit to David Lappin, my uh, my best friend and co-host on that. He does all, he does pretty much all the work. Uh, he's not just the co-host. He's our researcher, our sound engineer, our publicist. Uh, basically, he, yeah, he, he puts an insane amount of work into the show and it's it success is largely due to his incredible hard work and also good instincts on how to appeal to poker players well it was an absolute pleasure talking to you uh, thank you so much for your time and uh, yeah really enjoyed the conversation thank you so much thank you Dorantis. Yeah. thank you so much for listening to the episode and I really hope you enjoyed it you can find all the show notes on the website chasingpassion.ie that is chasingpassion.ie if you're looking to support the podcast in any way I would really appreciate if you could leave a short review on Apple Podcast, and this would literally take about 60 seconds and it will help the podcast grow in so many ways. You can find the link to Apple Podcast in the episode description or just simply search Chasing Passion on Apple Podcast and it should pop right up. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. It means the world to me. I really appreciate it. And yeah, just thank you so much and have a great day.